Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Now, although not every parent chooses to, many report wanting to breastfeed or chestfeed their child. Our Western society likes to promote this with slogans and ideas that breast is best, but most of that isn't backed up with the type of support that parents need to make this a reality. From inadequate leave, to advice that counters the promotion of breastfeeding, to a lack of instrumental and social support for new parents, breast and chest feeding are an uphill battle, to say the least. Unfortunately, this means many parents fail to reach their own goals, and this can lead to intense grief about this. Too often, they're told it doesn't matter, just to suck it up, neither of which is supportive or helpful for parents experiencing this grief or even trauma. This week, I was privileged to talk to Dr. Amy Brown about this issue, one she has researched and written on for her book, Why Breastfeeding Grief and Trauma Matter. Whether you are successful in your breast or chest feeding goals or not, or even if that just wasn't your choice to even embark on, this episode is a critical listen for all of us who engage with new parents. I am so thrilled to have with me today Dr. Amy Brown. She's a professor of public health, policy, and social sciences at Swansea University in Wales. Her research explores early experiences of parenthood with a focus on infant feeding, mental health, and normal baby behavior. She's also the program director for the Masters of Science in Child Public Health, where she specializes in teaching about the impact of pregnancy, birth, and the postnatal period upon child health and well-being. She's also the author of several books, including The Positive Breastfeeding Book, Breastfeeding Uncovered, and Why Breastfeeding Grief and Trauma Matter. She's highly active on social media and also writes for various news publications on the issue of infant feeding. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And I'm really glad you didn't name or number how many books I've written because I had a conversation with someone yesterday and they said, so how many have you written now? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> Does that make me sound like a complete idiot? <laughs> so, Not to worry. Books, I, I know there's a lot. There's more. I just highlighted a few there. But you have written. You're a prolific writer. It is amazing to me how much you manage to get out because <laughs> it's like it's nonstop. I don't know how you have time for anything else. Um, I don't know. I think I just find it quite easy to write. That also makes me sound terrible, doesn't it? Oh, it's just really easy to <laughs> knock out, you know, 20,000 words of an evening. <laughs> I think, you know, like most people who are really busy, like 90% of the book is the thinking about it yeah. and the planning it in your head. So you're planning it, you know, when you're stuck at the traffic lights or, you know, doing the washing or whatever. And then the actual writing doesn't take so long. Yeah. You know, I, I do feel you because if I'm working on a course or anything else, it's the same. I will ponder it for what feels like weeks and mm. you're just going, okay, it's in there. Oh, how am I going to re rework this and that and this? But then sometimes once you've got that piece worked out, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to knock out 20,000 words in a night, but I can knock out five, 6,000 and that feels like, okay, it's at least moving forward, but it has to all be there in your head before you actually get there. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start talking, we're going to talk a bit about breastfeeding grief, because you're one of the few people who really hones in on this. And I'm just so appreciative of that, because I think it's such an important issue in the infant feeding discussion. But before we get to that, um, how did you get into studying early parenting more generally and infant feeding 
more specifically? Oh, wow. So I think it's probably the same pathway that a lot of people take in that I had my own experiences, realized things needed work done and started doing it myself. So it is the usual story. I didn't really have a clue about any of this, what went on, what was missing, how new parents were being treated, all the gaps in the research and the evidence that were then used against parents until I became pregnant with my first baby. And I also had the sort of added value of being a relatively young mother. So even though at the time I was studying for a PhD, you know, I was fairly well educated. I knew what was going on, what I wanted. I knew the research and evidence base behind it. I was often treated like I was a bit stupid. It was a complete stereotype. Um, you know, if, if some people I, you know, I meet some of them now, and they treat me completely differently. <laughs> I think it just it just made me a huge advocate for women, and particularly those who are in less privileged circumstances and are facing all sorts of barriers, and really wanting to fight for them to get the research and evidence base that can then support them. Yeah. So that's that's sort of the broad story. I, I guess I'm a psychologist by background. I've always been interested in health and nutrition just with older children and adults. I did my master's dissertation on body image in, in older women um, and then just sort of fell into the real specifics because once you've had that baby and as an academic, you start looking at the literature to try and understand some of it and realise just how many gaps are there. Mm-hmm. And I've been going ever since. You know, that baby is now, he's nearly 15, he's six foot tall. <laughs> So you made it through those early stages now to face all the new ones in adolescence. <laughs> I, I now need me for teenagers. So if there is anybody out there who's me specializing in teenagers, I need you. <laughs> it is amazing to me how many people, like you said, end up studying this because of their own experiences. It's like we were lucky and not lucky. It would be lovely if we didn't have to have that, that people could have these experiences that were wonderful. And therefore the idea of, oh, we need to start actually researching this doesn't pop up. But at least we have people like you and so many others who get into this realm of feeding, of pregnancy, of parenting, because of, unfortunately, their own situations. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky one, though, when you start kind of picking it apart, because it kind of ends up, it's great, but it also has its downsides, because then I'm sure other academics in this area get it thrown at you. Oh, you're biased, you're based on your own experiences, you're trying to push that onto others, you can't think objectively, etc., which is all a load of nonsense. But also it, it limits who ends up in this field. So we all know there are barely any men here. It's mm-hmm. It always perpetuates the idea of it being a woman's issue, as if, you know, how our babies are fed is, is just something to do with, you know, women's hobbies or tastes or something, rather than being about population health. Yeah. So we end up with a quite a specific kind of spread of people, and the men are missing from that. And also it then kind of perpetuates it as the idea of, oh, they'll take it on. The people who have had those experiences will sort it out. Whereas if you look at any other area of health, you don't have to have had diabetes to become a diabetes specialist or cancer to be a cancer surgeon. 
you know, they, I'm sure people go down that path because of interest sometimes, but there are lots of people in it of their own accord rather than having to have the experience to realize that there's something wrong. Yeah. Well, and going also to what you said about being accused of bias, you know, we don't look at someone who had cancer as a kid and became a cancer surgeon and say, oh, you can't do this. You're going to be a really bad surgeon because you're biased from your own experience. We would never say that. And it sounds ridiculous to even suggest it. And yet we do do that for so many women who are studying feeding, pregnancy, parenting, sleep, all of it comes into play as if if you're not objective, you can't do the research. And then I see the flip side when things are presented to the public, you get a public where if you haven't experienced it, they're like, well, you haven't been there, so you don't know. So the research means nothing. So it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. It kind of feels like this minefield of an area to research. I think, yeah, I think that basically sums it up. <laughs> um, and people bringing their personal experiences into it. Um, you know, I've, I've had all sorts of comments over the years. And my favorite bad comment was somebody actually wrote on a grant application so a reviewer wrote um I don't know why you keep pushing ahead with this area I formula fed my baby and he's fine oh this is meant to be science yeah Uh, like what I I, I'm (laughs) like that is you're supposed to know better when you're actually a scientist reviewing these things that you know it's like the smoker who says oh I smoked for 50 years and never got cancer that's um not how science works that's not what we're we're looking at And I, I don't want to make the direct comparison between smoking and infant feeding. Of course. Sorry. I meant it from the scientific no, 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 no. perspective of claiming, you know, one versus the other. Yeah. But it's, if you think about that an- analogy for public health as well, um, you don't call the researcher who wants to help people stop smoking um, evangelical or biased. Yes. And I've been called evangelical and biased in applications that I've put in to do research to support women who want to breastfeed for longer. It's it's a very strange way we treat the whole area that sort of very kind of diminishes it and makes it seem like some sort of again, just using the word hobby or you know, yeah. weird niche thing, rather than something, you know, that sustained our species for however long yeah. <laughs> it's in population health you know <laughs> uh, we don't worry about population health here we're, we're not interested in that so it so like I said we're talking which is really relevant actually to what you were saying about the being preachy evangelical everything about breastfeeding grief and trauma because I think this view that you've talked about that we've just discussed about being seen as a hobby or this and that really speaks to the experience of grief and trauma because of how our culture approaches breastfeeding, infant feeding, um, pregnancy, parenting, all of it. Um, So you've written at length on this. And I want to start with the issue of language, because as you've kind of experienced, I think in the writing here, a lot of people would scoff at the idea of using the term grief or trauma with respect to breastfeeding, because it is, you know, seen as a hobby. It's like, well, you know, okay, I couldn't plant my garden this year. Using the word grief or trauma, people might look at you and be, okay, come on, isn't that a little melodramatic there? And yet it seems that's a similar response to the idea around breastfeeding sometimes is people are met with, with this. So 
why do you use those terms? How is trauma in particular relevant to infant feeding? I mean, I, I think it's all about recognizing that any area of mental health is down to an individual's experience of it. And that individual experience is going to be affected by so much stuff. I mean, if you go back, like in the psychology literature, they used to have these um, kind of stress questionnaires where you went through and you ticked off what had happened to you in the last year and you got a stress score. And it was like, well, that absolutely assumes that everything on that list has a certain amount of stress for everybody. So, you know, there's stuff like divorce. You could be devastated or you could be, woohoo, this is amazing. <laughs> that's ever happened to me. Um, so that we threw that concept out and realized it was all about the individual situation. And, and just going back to that example, you know, you know, I couldn't plant my garden this year. I'm grieving it. I mean, for your average person, that might be slightly melodramatic. But then you go to a situation where perhaps someone is living alone. They haven't got a lot of physical ability. Their garden is everything to them. It's the only sort of contact with wildlife and green space they've got. Then if they couldn't, then actually there's that grief really is there and I think it kind of plays into the idea that just in general you know our cultures we don't do grief very well I mean we're particularly bad at it in the UK um we just don't kind of recognize the concept of grieving and the stiff upper lip and not talking about it and certainly not doing it publicly um, and we see it as something negative rather than perhaps a, a grieving process that helps. So I think there's a lot of layers there. But the initial conversation around trauma, because people had talked about breastfeeding grief before, but the trauma conversation actually came um, about on social media of all places where I had been in a conversation with somebody about breastfeeding and they said something and I wrote something along the lines of it's almost as if they're traumatized. And up popped this male, middle-aged, white academic, and he must have, you know, had like a saved search on traumatised or something, because why on earth he'd have been there, I don't know. And when you can't use the word traumatised when it comes to breastfeeding. I just went, oh, hang on, what? Hey, <laughs> you don't tell me I can't do something. I don't know about you, but that's a complete red oh, rag yeah. to me. If you tell me I can't, <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I will spend my dying days <laughs> doing it. So I basically did then go off and really start thinking about the concept of trauma. And I didn't just want to do a study around, you know, concepts of being sad or grieving something, but I really wanted to sort of clinically look at whether women's experiences when they were particularly strong could actually be considered proper clinical trauma. So put together a study where I actually asked women to tell me about their experiences of breastfeeding and what happened to them if they weren't able to breastfeed for as long as they wanted to. And importantly then, um, how they felt, what it was that made them feel that way, what triggered it, who triggered it, who did they blame, how long had they been feeling that way. And then I went through all those stories and used a clinical trauma checklist. So I used the PTSD trauma from um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that very much sets out sort of criteria for trauma. And I went through all those stories, sort of checking them off about, you know, whether they were showing the different symptoms of it. 
And of course, not everybody who felt bad about not being able to breastfeed would be traumatized. But certainly within that sample, I think around six, seven, eight percent of women were really ticking all the boxes, you know, in terms of, you know, it's not that they just felt sad or angry about it, but they couldn't be around breastfeeding. They'd stop friendships because of it. Um, they were struggling in the workplace because of it. They had to avoid the baby aisle in the supermarket because they just couldn't think about babies still, even though their baby was much older. You know, they were having nightmares. They had visceral, horrible reactions when they saw breastfeeding. You know, it was really, really strong. And if you look at that kind of diagnosis tool for trauma, um, one of the kind of key parts and I think it is quite outdated really now when we think about more kind of community-based measures of trauma. But it asks, you know, um, did you have an accident that was very severe or was your life at risk? Or did you see someone else have an accident or die? And you kind of need to tick that box. Yeah. But there are much gentler versions, you know, where you know, people have distressing events and their lives are changed by that. So their physical and social and emotional functioning is changed. And it definitely meets that criteria. But then when you start digging into that concept of an accident or death or severe pain, when you actually think about some women's breastfeeding experiences, the physical trauma they go through, especially if they've had a difficult birth too, that whole experience to me is akin to physical trauma. Um, I just have a feeling we wouldn't tell a man that it wasn't trauma if his nipple was hanging off. Whereas with women, we're just like, yeah, that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> Nipples are falling off, you know. <laughs> it's, you just know, it reminds me um, of the idea that with trauma, again, that it has to be that we all experience these things similarly, that there are certain events that we allow to be traumatic. And for so long events that were in the realm of, I mean, the, the female. So, um, or, you know, generally female giving birth, breastfeeding, all of these things have been dismissed. I mean, you think about how long it took to get the idea of trauma for birth recognized because yeah. it wasn't, it was like trauma was only in the domain of, car accidents, um, you know, attempted murder, all this stuff was not something that could be. And it feels like this is just one more step bringing it closer to the idea that these experiences that many people have that have generally been ignored are finally making their way to the forefront and challenging how we view trauma because of it. Exactly. And if you take that idea and you apply other events that we would consider traumatic to the breastfeeding experience and the breastfeeding loss, then there are so many kind of equivalents where we would consider it to be traumatic. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, and obviously it's not a direct comparison, but if somebody had a their leg stopped working or their hearing went and they had that physical loss and all the connotations of it, then we would recognize that that would be a major medical event and we would recognize that it could be traumatic and they could be grieving uh, what they'd hoped their life to be like and it won't be the same. Yet with breastfeeding, we tell women that a part of their body not working is nothing to worry about. No, no big deal. Breasts not working? Oh, yeah, loads don't. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Matter. It doesn't matter. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also the hormonal aspect in some cases where, you know, I think about women who either are breastfeeding for a bit, unable to continue for whatever reason. I know there are some women who face severe depression from it because their hormones are now kind of acting as if they go back to that idea of having to fear for your life or lost someone. Your body is almost behaving as if you have lost your baby. There's a hormonal reaction to that. And that is hugely traumatic. And to try and reconcile the physical sensations of that with the cognitive of how you felt, but also the cognitive awareness, no, I still have a baby. That's going to be incredibly complicated as well. And I I think that's something we dismiss. And I, people are getting better at thinking about that concept. I think I used to talk about it quite a lot when I started doing the research for this book that, you know, on a physiological, biological, subconscious level, what does your body think has happened if you're not feeding your baby? Breastfeeding Mm -hmm. is the full stage of labor. It's what the body is physiologically expecting. And that's not the same as you must breastfeed from a social perspective. Nothing to do with that. It's just physiology and biology. And we forget that we're mammals some of the time. Yeah. So what is going on with with the stress hormones that must rise? You know, I'm not a biologist, but I'm assuming that the body gets stressed if, you know, that hormonal process is disrupted and it's not just about the changing hormones. And, it's, yeah. and I know, unfortunately, a few women who have lost babies at mm-hmm. term or day old or so, and Yeah. I mean, at least it's funny how we have the recognition for them. They had support of, okay, your milk's going to come in. There's going to be a lot of hormones here. We're going to try and balance it. We're going to do what we can to mitigate this effect for you. But we're not offering that similar support to women who are ostensibly biologically going through something that their body hormonally is treating Similarly, yeah. even though mentally they cognitively are not facing a similar experience. I, I think kind of related to that, one of the things that we're getting much better at in at the in the UK is thinking about um, donation of breast milk and offering the opportunity to women who are bereaved. Um, and different women feel completely different about this. But for those who want to, they can find it very healing. Yeah, And there's something in that, in transferring it over to our understanding about how women feel when they can't breastfeed, because it shows the importance of it. And again, for some women, this, this is never saying all women must feel this way. It's not saying there's something wrong with you if you don't feel this way and you're really happy you stopped breastfeeding. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, we certainly don't need more, you know, unhappy people. But, you know, it's it's really trying to get across the message that one woman's grief is not a criticism of another. Mm-hmm. And us saying that this matters to some women is not saying there is something wrong with the alternative. It's about kind of weighing that balance and realising that we can have simultaneous thoughts. So we can be grieving breastfeeding. We can be glad our baby is alive and we can be grateful that formula has been invented and we're not having to, you know, feed them kind of oats or something like that so he you know we can have all those thoughts it's fine um you know you you can leave a job can't you and be really pleased you're having a new job but still missing your old colleagues and missing your old job but overall you're still happy at something else so yeah 
Well, and you could leave your job and it could be the perfect job for someone else. They could hop in and absolutely love it. And you could be like, good riddance, but thank goodness <laughs> someone else is doing that, right? Like <laughs> it's, our experiences are mutual, but it does feel like with feeding too, similar to our previous stress test that we would look at, just the checklist, we treat the infant feeding experience as if it's interchangeable amongst people. And so if one person you know, wants to breastfeed, somehow we're supposed to assume everyone does. And if someone doesn't care if it doesn't work out, somehow we're supposed to assume that no one cares if it doesn't work out. And it's not the way we are. So it's not, you know, we, no. we all care about and like different things. And we don't in other areas tend to take it as a criticism when someone really likes something and you yeah. don't. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I keep using the example, you know, of running. If someone posts you know on Facebook that they've been out for a run is that they've been out for a run and they're really pleased with themselves because <laughs> um, now they're eating all the cake because they just burnt it off um it's it's you know I've never known a runner post something on social media because they want to criticize everybody who didn't right nobody goes you know I just ran 10k I can't believe you didn't you're such an awful person for, you know doing something else with your time it but yeah. you know the analogies are there and it, it's digging into just how emotive this all is and it, of course it's all within the context of guilt and pressure on women in general and you know the guilt to be the perfect mother or that's pressed on us as a means of controlling us because we know that's what it's all about it's about keeping people down and stopping them fighting for a better change in a world but you know it's it's about recognizing that and just you know nobody should be judging anybody for any decision everybody is doing their best within the context of their own family yeah which actually brings me to my next question because i think there is a real struggle in our culture to view the idea that women do value breastfeeding so often the narrative becomes no women are being pressured into breastfeeding. People are telling them they want to do it. But you've looked at, and again, not saying everyone does, but the the more common narrative now is that more often than not, it's pressure leading women to breastfeed as opposed to any intrinsic value for it. But you've looked at this in some of your research in terms of the value. What do you find? I mean, is it is there really a strong, are most women just feeling pressure to do it as opposed to having an intrinsic desire to do it? There, there are two issues there. There are the multitude of reasons why women have told me that breastfeeding is important to them. And then there's the concept of this pressure. And I, I don't fully understand where it comes from um, amongst women who really don't want to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. So usually... It, where, where is it coming from? Why do they specifically feel pressure in this area? Now, nobody should be judging them and nobody should be criticizing them. But where is where is the pressure? Because we're in a culture where virtually all babies have formula at some point. Formula is really normal and it's really common and it's on the bus stop and it's in the adverts and it's on wrapping paper. It's, it's everywhere. It's not like it's demonized because it's everywhere so where does the the feeling of pressure come from is it from within themselves that they wanted to be able to do it and they couldn't because there were too many barriers that's one thing is it because someone is being really critical and horrible to them and that's awful and we we need to stop that just as much 
So it, it's something I, I really want to delve into understanding better where it comes from, because that's the only way we're going to move forward and fix it. And I don't think we understand enough about that feeling at the moment. But in terms of this idea that there is too much pressure on, on women to breastfeed, just just no. Um, <laughs> women want to breastfeed for all sorts of reasons. And it's it's when it goes wrong in a culture that doesn't support them, that they start feeling awful about it. Yeah. You know, I don't know anybody, well, I, maybe I've come across a few people over the last 15 years, but I don't know anybody for whom breastfeeding is going really well and it's easy, relatively easy for them and they're feeling pressurised to do it. The pressure is is tied up in the difficult experiences and the overwhelm and the barriers and the challenges. So again, it's it's that issue that women are struggling in a culture and society that doesn't support them. And it's not the pressure that's the issue. It's you know, it's the barriers in the culture that needs <laughs> fixing. That's what we need need to change rather than you know, stopping talking about breastfeeding ever and never mentioning it again. But yeah, it's it's a really tricky one. But I really love that you just brought that up because I'd never thought about it in terms of the pressure only coming when you're struggling, right? Because it's true. And I was I was very lucky that my breastfeeding journey journeys that's still ongoing because apparently I'm just nursing orangutans, as I said before, um, that goes on forever. And it is, I never felt pressure because I, I just, there was no pressure because there was nothing almost to think about. It just was something that I did and it happened and it went well. But I wonder then thinking of that, because it is such a crucial piece that is like, I can't believe I missed that piece of the puzzle. It's like that one key part to the puzzle there. But how much is tied up then in our cultural struggle? We've talked about our cultural struggle with grief, but with failure, how we tend to really put, at least in North America, and I I think it's similar in the UK, um, with the idea that failure is personal, that if you fail at something, it is because you failed. There is very little acknowledgement that you could fail at something because systems were in place against you. And I don't know. And then on top of which, even if it is you, like I think about kids and and schooling stuff or even things I've dropped the ball on, we then pass moral judgment as opposed to having this growth mindset of, hey, you can learn from it that there's something value to be gained in things that don't work out. But more than that, I think it is, it's we see it as a personal failure in in that. And does that resonate with what you might have seen with women? Absolutely. Um, And I think it's part of a really complex culture that tries to keep women down, but also tries to encourage women to blame themselves because they then tend to spend the time blaming themselves and arguing with people around them rather than being able to see that this is a huge societal issue that needs changing. Mm. So one of the things I asked women about in that research was, you know, who do you blame for all of this? 
And um, a very small proportion were able to say, um, I, I blame the government for not properly investing in breastfeeding support and the structures that we need. Um, I blame the formula industry for their tactics and pushing and um, misconstrued messaging and all of that. Others blamed you know, media and just, just pressures more general. And those were the women who were generally doing better they were less likely to be the ones who were really traumatized by this. And then you sort of move down. So some could externally, you know, move the blame and recognize that they were let down perhaps by a health professional who probably in turn was let down by, you know, a government that doesn't probably invest in the services. There's sort of a chain, isn't there? A chain of trauma um, or the partner or the mother-in-law who didn't understand and couldn't support but the far most common reaction was I blame myself. And, you know, every one of those women, I just wanted to sit down and hug them and talk them through it and go, look, look at everything you just told me, why you couldn't, what went wrong. It's not you. You know, if very few women just give up, and I hate that phrase as well, they don't just give up breastfeeding on one Wednesday afternoon because they're a bit bored and they've just, you know, I can't be bothered anymore. You know, like I've been on a diet since 10 o'clock, it's lunchtime, I'm going to have a cake. You know, it's not <laughs> the same mindset, is it? It's, you know, it's something they agonise over. And again, why I hate the word choice around feeding choices, it's rarely a choice, it's a decision they get forced into. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that they're then blaming themselves in all of this and just to be able to sit down with them and and work through everything and go, look, all right, let's take you through this journey. Did you get the support you need at every stage? I highly doubt it. You either didn't get the support you needed to be able to breastfeed or you didn't get the diagnosis and tests and everything that is should be there for a woman if she isn't producing enough milk. I just... This concept I'm getting more and more mad at that, you know, the woman can say I'm not producing enough milk and nothing happens apart from saying, right, you're going to need to use formula. It's just this gap and it's awful and it dismisses the whole thing. But then there's the other part of it there that quite often women in that research were saying, when I had to move to formula, nobody helped me with that either. It was just go and use formula. No processing of the situation, no support, no questions. They quite often then ended up losing their support networks because everything was tied up to funding or limited funding around breastfeeding. So they were told they couldn't go to the breastfeeding support group anymore because they weren't breastfeeding and all their friends were there. Or really randomly, things were accessible through breastfeeding support. So you'd go to the breastfeeding support group and they'd give you information about baby massage or something. So it was almost like a gatekeeper to the baby <laughs> massage that you, you had to get go to that group. And it's you know all of that. And it's the perfect trick to get women to blame themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's even better if you can then get them to say that breastfeeding doesn't matter. Yeah. Because then you don't have to invest, you don't have to change, you don't have to do anything about this. You know, if women really got angry to the level that they should be angry about this because they understood just how they've been treated, that's the way we move it forward. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's it's so important on so many levels that, you know, it's heartbreaking to see women keeping breaking, blaming themselves for this and judging themselves for it and pressurizing themselves because of it. 
Well, and it reminds me of the lack of understanding that they then get afterwards. Because as you said, if it then just comes down to, well, breastfeeding is no big deal. You have nothing to feel sad about. Then we're taking these emotions and subsuming them and making on top of not only feeling like you failed, now you're being told the fact that you're upset about it. Well, that's also your problem. You're failing there too, because you also shouldn't be upset. And it reminds me of a woman I spoke to once years ago who had lived in the U.S. and well, was living in the U.S., no, I guess she got what her six weeks maternity leave or something like that before having to be back at work. And she exclusively pumped for something like six months. And I just kudos hats off my goodness. And then just wasn't her wasn't keeping up the pumping wasn't enough to keep up supply. And she switched to formula. And I just, you know, all I said to her, just quite honestly, I was like, first off, holy crap, kudos to you for pumping for that long, because that's incredible. And I'm really sorry that it didn't work out. As And she kind of looked shocked and said, you're the first person to mm-hmm. say that, that I was, because I do feel bad and I did want this. And everyone just keeps telling me that it's no big deal, that mm-hmm. it just switched over. And I'm like, what a dismissive view. Like, it doesn't matter if they don't want to breastfeed the fact that she did. And you could see by the amount of effort she clearly put into doing that because I mean, I barely pumped because my God, that was just horrible. And I was lucky that I didn't have to, but that is effort. That's someone who really wanted that to work and wasn't supported and didn't have it work and should be allowed to process that. But it seems like we're just adding failure on top of failures to the mental health of moms who are already struggling. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's she feels failure because she can't breastfeed. Um, she feels failure because she doesn't feel the right way then. And then she feels failure because she doesn't automatically know what to do about formula feeding and feeding a baby that way. It, it's just failure at every level, which, of course, it's not her. It's, it's the system that's failing her. But just, you know, thinking about that it it seems that we kind of rush to tell women that it doesn't matter and I think some of it comes from desperately wanting to try and make them feel better that look it doesn't matter you don't have to feel this way um it doesn't matter or sometimes it's about ourselves that you know we it's that perpetuation isn't it um someone isn't able to breastfeed and they felt awful about it so they can't quite deal with the person in front of them really caring about breastfeeding because it reminds them that they really cared about it too and because no one supported them through that they squished that down and tried to pretend that it didn't matter to them and of course that then triggers all of that yeah but we we're far gentler with people for far less important things so you know if you know in the grand scheme of things um if someone failed their driving test You'd be like, oh, no, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and they can try again, presumably. I know, right? Or, oh, you didn't manage to beat the time you wanted in your race. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, or your diet lasted an hour. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Can you tell I've eaten a lot of cake today? Someone like But, you know, for far less things, we, we just were happy to kind of comfort people there. 
and react to them. No one goes, look, why are you bothering? You know, why did you bother to take a driving test? It doesn't matter. You can get the bus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it goes back to what you said earlier. And I've actually done a whole episode with uh, Amy Glenn on this on our struggle with grief is Mm -hmm. grief is something we are really so those little things we can be present for because it doesn't trigger our discomfort. Mm -hmm. We don't have to actually deal with big emotions. And we're equally bad. You know, we were actually talking about grief in terms of pregnancy loss. And people are equally bad there, even though legitimately, oh, you lost a baby. We can give the token, I'm very sorry. And then very quickly, it's like, okay, you know what? Could you just get better? Because... I'm really not comfortable with this and I don't really want to talk about it. So if you could just, if you could just get it together for me, that would be great. Um, and I think here it's even a step further because they have no tangible loss to hang on to, right? It's not like a pregnancy loss or infancy loss, but it's also not minor enough to just be able to sit with it and say, oh yeah, that driving test sucked. It's like this in-between world of, It's clearly emotional for some women, not all, but for some, and yet there's nothing to hang your hat on. And I don't think we either have the steps to tell them how to process this grief. And I think that's the other part here is what do we do to help people process this grief? Because it's, we can't just magically make it better. They can't try again. They can't get back on the wagon. I mean, maybe they can. I, I know there are some extreme cases of women relactating and and working later through things, but that's a pretty extreme and, and requires a lot of support and, and privilege in many ways to do that. But we just don't have anything we can offer, right? Yeah. We, except for ourselves. And that's what we're least comfortable, like, comfortable doing. I I mean, it's so important that we put something in place to recognize, I mean, it's a really important part there of actually recognizing that it, it is something. Um, so I was, it was on a Facebook post a while ago, I was just saying that we've got, we've got no real word for when breastfeeding doesn't work. Um, you could have lactation failure, which is <laughs> so clinical. <laughs> I mean, everything there is awful. But I'm thinking, you know, we have all these phrases in our language that things like baby loss and miscarriage, everybody knows what they are. They're, they're terms we share. They're, baby loss is a sort of gentler phrase that everybody understands. But but there's no word for breastfeeding loss, lactation loss. I, yes. I don't think we, we, we didn't get, people had so many ideas, but none of them were quite right. Yeah. Um, there's no term for it. It's just not something that's considered. So we haven't got language for it. So how do you then talk about it? Yeah. Um, and it's so important because just going back to that point of, we haven't just got intergenerational grief here. But we've got that kind of intergenerational and um, multi-level trauma on all levels around this, that you have one woman who has a terrible experience. She really wanted a breastfeed. She couldn't. She blames herself. There's no support for her whatsoever there on all levels. And she's so traumatized and affected by that that she can't bear to think about it. So when somebody else around her starts 
grieving or saying it was important, you get the backlash and you get the, you're making me feel guilty. You're saying there's something wrong with me um, or simply cannot talk about it or the desire to tell her it doesn't matter because really they're talking about themselves and telling themselves it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So then the next woman is affected and does she go on to do the next thing and the next thing? And it's coming at all levels. And, you know, when you see those big articles about pressure to feed and horrible circumstances, I just think, what happened to you? Can we please get some processing here? Um, because we can't go around telling everybody else that, even if it genuinely doesn't matter to us and we're convinced it doesn't matter to us, which I'm not convinced people are a lot of the time, you know, it, why write a story in a national newspaper <laughs> about what <laughs> does not matter? Um, <laughs> it, it, very good point there. Um, and you know, there's, there's clearly trauma on some level. There's clearly yeah. difficulties on some level there, and it's about how can we stop this and give people a chance to heal and process without getting into the one way being right or one way being another. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not about methods being right. It's not about breast is best or fed is best or any of that. It's just about making sure that. The support is in place so everybody has the information and support they need to feed their baby in the way they want to. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't work, then they're allowed to process and heal and they have the support through that. It's I love your use of support because it used to be, you know, being informed. Well, we could be informed up the wazoo and there's no if you're not supported. I know how to run. I, I understand the mechanics of it. it it's all there. I, I can see it. Uh, I can't run because of physical stuff with me from a car accident, but it's like, I, I do understand it. I can be informed all I want, but what's in place isn't going to help me there. So the support would need to be, is is more crucial than I think even the information, like the people who need the information are not inherently, I think the women at the center, obviously we want everyone to be informed for as much as the choices they want to make. But I feel like the information has to be the people surrounding offering the support, because like you said, oh, you know, you're not producing enough milk. Those are the people that need the information about, okay, what steps do we take next? How do we look at this? What do we offer? Where, where do we go from here as examples? And then even coming down to, I mean, we've, so far, like our discussion has been the way it normally is. If it doesn't work, it's formula. And the formula industry has done a wonderful job of demonizing mm-hmm. collective lactation, milk sharing, um, shared breastfeeding. And that is another way, because I think this also speaks to it. And I'd be curious your thoughts on this. But I think about some of the discussion that goes in, especially in public health, and the World Health Organization that almost breast milk for a baby, some countries treat it as a right, because we know the benefits there. Well, if you're failing at providing your child a right, which is the narrative we give, well, again, when it's not working, the pressure is intense. And yet, collective lactation has been around for ages to help us meet the needs of many babies. And as much as a mother needs or wants to do with that. So do you think that that sometimes also plays a role in terms of our view about, and our discussion of the public health benefits of breastfeeding? I I just think it all comes down to that culture and that support around 
feeding babies. So it's about the lack of value of breast milk and breastfeeding, the lack of understanding of it, the lack of it being the norm anymore. You know, the formula is the norm. You know, we can talk about pressure and we can talk about, um, you know, public health messages around breastfeeding, but actually it's the formula that's got the stronghold out there. It's everywhere. So within all of that, it's a major cultural change to the norm of breastfeeding and breast milk. Mm-hmm. I find all the research around breast milk and disgust really fascinating that we can somehow be so disgusted by the milk that sustains our own species, yet happily drink cow's milk because, you know, the advertising campaigns have done such a brilliant job to think it's this nice, clean, white product you buy in the supermarket that is so far removed from a cow's udder. But, yeah. (laughs) It's all of that. It's, It's the weird perceptions of women who breastfeed past infancy it's Mm -hmm. it's public breastfeeding it's just a lack of understanding of how it all works and why it's important Mm -hmm. and we were having this conversation a few days ago in work that strangely people seem to be able to think about breast milk differently when it comes to very premature and very small and sick babies there seems to be a different discussion around that that we can talk about the power of it and the protection of it and nobody argues in the same way but as soon as we're talking about everyday life out in the street that we see, then somehow it's disgust and horror. And, you know, you you only have to ask even your most kind of down to earth friends, you know, do you want some breast milk in your coffee or would you eat a breast milk ice cream? And most of them would go, Ooh, no, no, I couldn't. Uh, right. It's so weird. It's so, and yet I think that again, normalizing that not only helps with the support, but normalizing collective lactation can Mm. help ease the burden of grief. If something isn't working, okay, if there is this idea that I want to provide my baby with human milk for whatever, Mm. if that's part of it for a given woman, having that option can help ease, okay, maybe I couldn't do it, but I've got this community. I mean, other there are other cultures that talk about, you know, milk siblings, because that shared collective lactation is part of what bonds them as a special event, not something negative, it's something positive. And I wish we could get there. Just because I know I am, we could go on for ages with this. But I am curious, because you've done a lot of research on, you know, what are, what are the things that are generally stopping women's ability to breastfeed as long as they like because you talk to women about this you do so much research about what is going on for them what are the common barriers that so many of them cite as being at play I mean it's I think rather than thinking about kind of individual barriers it's it's more the kind of complex web of them almost that so many women seem to have so many layers of barriers that it's not just the one thing it's all those different barriers they face every single day. Some are really obvious and in their face and others are so much more kind of subtle, but actually having a really strong influence. And if we wanted to change all of this, we we really need, you know, a multifaceted effort here. What quite often you see in breastfeeding research and, you know, it just depresses me really that people pick one area and go, oh, right. So maybe it's, Um, the lack of 
practical support in the first day. We'll do an intervention for this. And then they're like, oh, it hasn't worked. Um, and you're like, right, okay, so maybe you did improve something there, but then everything else happened and all those other layers. So yes, you have, you know, you have the very first steps of the practical and the physiological issues. We have, you know, not enough skill support on the ground, not enough investment in that to make sure that those first feeds are going well. Um, the, we have so many women going through medicalized births, which is then affecting the hormones and physiology after birth, which makes it so much more tricky. We have a lack of understanding around, you know, how breastfeeding works. So the concept of frequent feeding was one of my big bugbears. You know, we, we just never, so many people seem to misconstrue a baby feeding naturally and responsively as something being wrong um, when actually they're there stimulating milk supply and feeding in a perfectly natural way. They're just not feeding the same as the four hour fed, formula fed baby that we're so used to. Then you've got the lack of specialist support is the big one. Um, You know, when things are really going wrong, where are women able to turn to um, within the system if they don't know about specialists or they're not able to access a lactation consultant? Where are the medical tests for when things are going wrong? But then there's all the layers in the culture that they're trying to breastfeed in. So we are a formula feeding culture now despite those promotion messages. So partners don't understand about it. Grandparents don't understand about it. The people on the street don't understand about it. Those weird attitudes around breastfeeding in public, the weird disgust of breast milk, work, going back to work, pressure to get your life back, no value of mothering and recovery and just being with your baby and being protected and valued and supported around that. It's, we just don't love our new parents enough, do we? we? We let them get on with it and even almost give a badge of honour to women who are there doing it all out the house, running around after the toddler, um, as in some sort of strange, you know, kind of... I, I remember doing it with my own children. I, I think, you know, I did have just this moment. It was either with my second or third baby that they were about four days old Um, And I was up a climbing frame in the park with the toddler when I just sort of went, what on earth am I doing? (laughs) Just, you know, when you just freeze and you go, oh, okay, this is crazy. Go home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, and it was certainly with one of the others. I think it was the, I didn't learn my lesson. This was with the youngest one. Whereas in the supermarket, you know, you put your full shop through and the nice lady at the checkout goes, oh, he's lovely. How old is he? And I'm like, he's three days old. And she's like, what? (laughs) What are you doing here? Go home, Amy, go home. But, you know, it's it's that. It's that is normalized and, you know, almost you're kind of, Sometimes it's in a jokey way that, you know, I joke about it now, but it's not actually very funny at all, is it, when you start thinking about it? You know, if I caught anybody else doing it, I'd be marching them home and, you know, cooking them dinner. But where are those layers of support? No wonder it's so, you know, caring for a newborn baby is exhausting. If you're the only one doing it at night when nobody else is then caring for you, if you're left alone all day at home, because your partner's gone back to work or they've gone to play golf on their mater- paternity leave here. You know, it's not designed, we're not designed to look after babies on our own, which comes back to, you know, the concept of communities caring for them and cultures caring for them. 
know, it's, it's just so tough. And especially the impact of COVID on top of all of this. How oh, many started you know, on COVID. Yeah, new mothers are just been so isolated and without that support system and it's yeah no well and they've been facing separations at birth despite it being against you know protocol there's been so many different barriers with covid that come in the way you know i i love that you talk about the web because that is exactly it feels like a spider's web you're just caught with it's not one particular thing that sticks you to it because one thing you could often just pull away from and get free from it's the fact that it's encompassing everything that you do and it even makes me think of women where I've seen breastfeeding actually was going pretty well and things were fine. And then we have these parenting ideas of like sleep. No, 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 no. They shouldn't be feeding to sleep. They shouldn't be feeding overnight anymore. They're certainly too old for that. And you have to be limiting this. And suddenly problems develop in an otherwise healthy breastfeeding relationship because you know, or they must go to daycare now and you should have them there all day and you can feed them when they get home or feed them in the morning, but that's about it. And you suddenly have six month olds, eight month olds who are down to two feeds a day because the way we've told people to parent is so counter to what a breastfed baby, even an older breastfed baby often needs or the judgments in public. I mean, my goodness, heaven forbid you feed in public. I did it a lot and was very lucky. Actually, it's a very lovely comments because there were people that would come up and be like, good for you. I love seeing this, which is great Mm -hmm. and lovely. But I remember one time being on a ferry with my daughter who was, she must've been about a year Uh, maybe a bit younger, but it would have been around a year. And I was nursing her on the ferry and this family must've caught a glimpse. And I mean, really, I don't know how they were sitting far enough away. They clearly saw that she was feeding, but well, I saw them catch a glimpse. And then I saw them spend, you know, five minutes really trying to arch up and see what was happening. Like they really took effort to figure out what was going on. And then when they realized what was going on, they sat there glaring at me for the duration of the ferry ride. I mean, I think if they'd been allowed to get up and come over and yell at me, they would have, but we had to stay seated for the ferry ride. But I thought you just spent like five minutes trying to figure out what's going on just to be able to glare at me because why? <laughs> why? I'm not sure. You could turn, look at this lovely, we're on a ferry by an island that is gorgeous. You should be looking at this, looking at this. And instead you're so caught up that you're, wasting your time well I'm just smiling back I'm like hi <laughs> how you doing <laughs> would you like to know more about breastfeeding <laughs> what can I share with you now <laughs> it's like but I want to ask people what they're so angry about yeah what, what is it a baby eating a meal <laughs> um, a woman doing something physiologically normal um keeping a baby quiet yeah uh, I what is it it's it's <laughs> Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is to do with power and anger at women being allowed to do these things. I think a lot of it came down to, and I mean, if you, if we went into, you know, the territory of if men breastfed, we wouldn't oh, yeah. have this nonsense, would we? No, we really wouldn't. It, it's it's quite true. Men there would be... babies everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's what I want to see going around, is we should just have them try it for a day. You've got to be doing 
Yeah, let's see what, how, you, how you handle it. But it's true. I know. I always do wonder, like, what? And also, similarly, the objection in view to breastfeeding an older child is mm. the disgust there. As we talked about, this disgust about it is so prevalent. And I do my best to always normalize for people. Like, you know, my daughter weaned at, it was six or seven. I'm not entirely sure when and not months years and it was and my son is five and still going so we'll see how long that takes but it's um you know it, it, but i think people have this view they're like are they attached to your boob all day long and it's like no at that age that's really not how it works and you know they can go <laughs> a while in between there, there's really that's that's not that they still eat food lots of food. They are not getting their primary source of anything from breast milk. But yes, they're still nursing. And that's actually okay. You know what I mean? But I think it's a sort of person who would, you know, oh, they're just doing it for comfort. They should have, find comfort in other ways as if, you know, they, they're the sort of person who go, oh, they should have a dummy or, you know, a favorite blanket or something like that, or find, you know, get comfort in yep. another way, not from you. Because yeah. getting comfort from other humans is bad because, I don't know. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I always try to start justifying people. I'm like, people will ask me about the history. I'm like, well, you know, I think they feel this way because, you know, obviously offering comfort to your kids is bad. horrible. Bad. Like, uh, what? I, I don't, yeah. Why? That I can't answer. I have no idea how we got to that stage whatsoever. Um, but yeah, apparently it's really horrible. And it makes me think, like, are we living in, like, Spartan times where we took babies away because we wanted them to be really violent and really angry so that That's we good. could win wars. And okay. <laughs> we're headed for, I think so. I mean, apparently we're headed back towards that. I just, I didn't get the memo. So I'm, I'm going to have the children that are left on the rocks at the end because they weren't tough enough. Um, I'm intrigued. I, I want to do a study on this now. I want to ask people who are against it. Why? Yeah. What is. Because you often hear that they're against it. So they don't yeah. like breastfeeding in public. It's disgusting or they don't like breast, uh, breastfeeding an older baby because that's disgusting. But why? Why is it? And then they'll just give you why the, it's it? inappropriate. Okay. What makes why? you so sad? <laughs> <laughs> and how does it affect you? I, that's my other question for people is really, how is this affecting your life? Like what, you know, I think about, I go back to that family a lot because it was, I, I've had lots of looks, but it mm. was the, just the hilarity of this, we're spending our time trying to figure it out and we're going to give up something good that to look at this beautiful fairy ride to glare at you. And I'm like, I, I just don't get what it, what do you get from that? And I imagine them getting off and complaining about it for the rest of the day. I don't even know. Did their whole day go to hell because they saw someone breastfeed a one-year-old? No. Uh, I think they actually had a really good day because they were so angry. They're the type of person who really enjoys being angry about something and being outraged. You know, a good bit of outrage. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I do wonder, what do people get out of this view? And I do think, you know, it would be interesting. I'd be very fascinated to see if you look at this what is, can you get people to get specific? Because that's where I think, you know, oftentimes in our fear, I, I talk about it with fear with families, but when we have our anxieties about things with our kids, they're often very general. Oh my God, what if, you know, if I don't, 
send my kid to daycare, horrible things are going to happen. Okay, well, what horrible things are going to happen? I, I, I don't know. They'll, they'll never make friends. Really? You think, are you planning on just never exposing them to anyone? Does the alternative mean that they live in the basement by themselves? Because if that's the answer, then yeah, we want to talk about it. But our brain seems to do this thing where when we face fear, when we face anger, it's generalized. It's, you know, I mean, that's part of CBT treatment is getting people to try and get specific to get rid of this catastrophizing or this strong reaction of, of fear or disgust to be able to look at, okay, what's really going on? And it's amazing how most of the time there's nothing there. When you really start honing in, there's absolutely nothing except perhaps cultural ideas that have crossed our path about things or, um, you know, just innate fears. So something like spiders where we have our innate fears of them. And so even though there's nothing specific, we can know logically you know, that emotional reactivity comes up very strongly. But I would be curious to see if anyone can give a really concrete statement that doesn't sound ridiculous on its head. Because I'm sure challenge. someone will come up with something. But right. there's a challenge if anybody's listening to this. <laughs> you know. We want not, the challenge. But... Give, give me someone who has some concern that's going to be you know, because I feel like it gets down to, well, if you do it, the robots are going to come to life and murder us all. Is yeah. like that, you know, is that, and if that's the case, then we should talk further. But yeah, it is, it's really interesting there. So, all right. So I have to ask my final, I have kept you so long and I'm so sorry. I know it's the evening for you. You need to go relax and eat more cake. But um, I think, with all this, as we've kind of hinted at here, there is this negative cycle. We have this experience that women have that's very negative. We dismiss the emotions for them. So they're not allowed to grieve. They're not allowed to recover from trauma, from grief, from everything. And then they often end up being ones who, through their own way of coping with it, perpetuate some of these situations going around. So very briefly, because, you know, it's a super quick question here. Um, how do we break the cycle? I mean, I, th I think it's being, it's a bigger conversation, isn't it, about how women are made to feel and how women are made to feel judged and pressured and criticised for the way that they care for their babies. We need to kind of move from that and really realise that other people's decisions are no judgment of ours and that feeling loss is not the same as not being grateful for formula feeling loss is not a criticism of formula it's just recognizing that different people process this in different ways and that we need to start talking about it more and I think we are I think the conversation just just looking at it over the last couple of years is changing more and more women instead of saying breastfeeding doesn't matter to me, what you want about, are saying, I couldn't breastfeed, I blame myself, and I feel terrible. And of course, we can then talk and we can then support through that story. And it's being able to just, you know, we have to make sure that nobody is being criticised directly in any of this. But we have to have more conversations around why it's important to process and why we really need to move try and move past our own feelings of judgment to support the people in front of us. 
And I think I said yesterday when I was talking to somebody, you know, if if you are just so fed up of us talking about breastfeeding, the very best thing you can do is be part of the effort to make this thing, this better. Because if we can get to this place where all women who want to breastfeed have the support that they need, then we can shut up. <laughs> we don't <laughs> need to talk about it anymore. I can become a cake baker. <laughs> Instead, you'll never have to hear from me again. So <laughs> if we can just, you know, move this along. <laughs> It's so true. It's so funny that you say that because I do think I'm like, oh, there are so many people where I'm sorry, but I wish you were out of work. I wish you could go bake cakes and and run and do whatever else that you want to do. But as is, it's true. And that's a really good point that I never thought of is like, if you want us to shut up, be part of the solution that allows everyone to be quiet about it. So Amy, I thank you so much. I could talk to you for ages and I hope I can get you on again to talk some more about the positive side of breastfeeding because you are very good on that too. Um, So before we go though, could you share what you're working on for people with research? If there is any research that's open for people who may want to take part or reach out with their experiences, is there anything open for individuals? Oh, at the moment, I have we have so many bits planned at the moment. At the moment, we've got a bit of a backlog in that we're working on publishing and getting some stuff out, particularly around mental health and feeding, something we're really, really focusing on. I'm just, just trying to you've made my mind completely blank. Look, it's quarter past eight on a Wednesday night. <laughs> I don't know what research I'm doing. <laughs> if you want to know more in general, have a look at my website, which is professoramybrown.co.uk. all the links on there so we'll have in the show notes if you do want to see what she's doing and if she ever does open up to new research after processing everything it will all be there and are you you're on instagram i am i'm I'm prof amy brown on instagram and on twitter and professor amy brown breastfeeding uncovered on on facebook Okay, so we will share all of those so you can find all of Amy's stuff. I would share where she writes, but that's everywhere. So you just have to do a little look and you'll find it there. But um, thank you so much, Amy. I have put all the articles on my website. So if you go to the website, I've collated every single article pretty much that I can remember that I've written is on there. (laughs) The remembering bit. So now you can make it your challenge to go see if you can find ones that Amy forgot and then she can add them. So. But thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your work in this field. Thank you for the book in this field. So if you are listening, if you if any of what has been said resonates with how you feel with your breastfeeding journey and you're feeling guilt or you're feeling like you failed, I cannot recommend why breastfeeding grief and trauma matter to you enough because you need to understand that it's not you. And this book is a wonderful way. And it's not a long book. You don't have to wade through 500 pages here, which is good because I think when people are faced with trauma, you want something somewhat immediate. So you can make it through this. And hopefully I do believe it can help you. So we will have a link for the books as well there directly if you are struggling with this. But thank you, Amy, once again for joining us. And hopefully I can get you back on again soon. (laughs) If you're lucky. (laughs) Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and feel that you can offer the emotional support that some new parents will need as they go on their feeding journey. 
Next week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with one of my heroes, Dr. Helen Ball, to talk about this intricate relationship between feeding and sleep in infancy. She's a legend, and if somehow you don't know her work, you're in for a treat. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.